Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach talking to you from my living room. This is our first Zoom podcast because we are quarantining ourselves, as I trust you are doing too. My guest today is Chris Liu, former member of the Obama and Biden administration, a person you've seen on a lot of TV shows. We're going to talk about what's happening and how we can really remember what we need to stay happy and sane in this time. You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Welcome to the podcast. Today is our first Zoom podcast, and it may be buggy, but we'll get through it. My guest, however, is a professional Zoom pundit and opinion offerer and brilliant man who is now a fellow at the UVA Miller Center. He was a cabinet member in the Obama and Biden administration. He was head of the transition to the Obama-Biden administration, a lawyer, a preppy, a Princetonian. Chris <laughs> Liu, welcome to the show. Uh, Lisa, I got to tell you, I have a chance to do a lot of fun things. This definitely ranks up there in, in terms of things I get to do because I've been an admirer of yours for so long. Oh, gosh. Say more. No, don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Chris. And, and, you know, when we first got in touch, I I need to tell you, you're my first cabinet secretary I've ever spoken to. And I called you Secretary Lou and you said, please don't. And I mean, I'm still very impressed that (laughs) this is happening. And the listeners should know that I brought my original copy of the Preppy Handbook, the official Preppy Handbook, uh, to to this interview. And uh, if you were able to see the video version, uh, we'll show it holding it up right now. Yes. Lisa will sign the next time uh, we see each other. That's right. When it's safe to travel. Absolutely. We will do that. So, Chris, you are somebody who has experienced crises at the senior federal level. And you were part of the team that put together the books and information for the incoming Trump administration, should there be, God forbid, a pandemic in their regime or under their aegis. And what happened? What? How did you assemble it? And how did you try to provide the information to them? Well, just to take a step back, I ran President Obama or President-elect Obama's uh, transition in 2008. Then I went to manage his cabinet. So I do have sort of a misleading title. My title was White House Cabinet Secretary. So I wasn't technically a secretary. I was more the secretary to the cabinet. Um, So I saw the transition on the way in uh, for President Obama. And then as the Deputy Secretary of Labor, uh, I helped with the transition out. And in January... 2017, a week before Inauguration Day, the outgoing Obama administration, uh, about 30 of us, sat down with 30 incoming people from the Trump administration um, to do a tabletop role-playing exercise uh, to to help them understand how government comes together when you deal with a major crisis. And we gave them a hurricane, a cyber attack, and a pandemic. And this was very similar to an exercise that we had done with the outgoing Bush administration in January of 2009. Wait, um, let me just ask you one question. When you say you were telling them, who was them? It wasn't the president-elect. It was... 
It, it was their, Kelly, it, people right, like it was, that? It was their entire senior White House staff and their entire cabinet were there, uh, along with their counterparts from the uh, Obama side. Okay, gotcha. And it wasn't, it wasn't, a, they, they were not required to do anything at this exercise, but what they were supposed to be there to observe is how, if a scenario like this came up, how government, all the different parts of government have to come together to uh, coordinate and anticipate a response. And um, what was remarkable about that exercise that we did one week before Inauguration Day 2017 is the fact pattern. And the fact pattern we gave uh, was a pandemic, a novel version of the flu, influenza, that starts in Europe and Asia. And there is a lead time before it comes to the United States. So during this lead time, lag time, uh, we have the chance to prepare. Uh, We're supposed to assess uh, the availability of medical equipment. We're supposed to coordinate between uh, the federal government and governors. We're supposed to consider how we get vaccines and antivirals uh, ready um, and how we create a coordinated messaging. And in hindsight, it's a remarkably close scenario to what we are facing now. Uh, and then when we left this exercise, uh, we gave them a 69-page playbook of how to deal with a pandemic step-by-step And what's interesting is not only just how similar the exercise was, but um, of the 30 or so people from the Trump administration, about 20 of them have now left the government. So uh, I have no idea whether they took to heart the lessons we gave them, but even if they had, very few of them are there right now. It occurred to me that because of the turnover in his administration, that many of the people who were, let's say, trained were gone. But also the fact that your your hypothesis was so close to what has happened suggests to me that there were some far-sighted people in the administration who saw this as a future tragedy. Yeah. And, and it's important to understand. I mean, I think both your points are so important. Um, I, I managed President Obama's cabinet, so I was there for the first term. And during that first term, the first four years, we essentially had the same senior White House staff, the same cabinet. And we not only did drills, tabletop exercises, we actually had to go through uh, crises. In 2009, we had H1N1. 2010, we had a big uh, oil spill on the Gulf Coast. 2012, we had Hurricane Sandy. 2014, we had Ebola. So having that stability made all the difference in the world because we we just knew what our roles were. We knew how to function with each other. And in an administration where there is just so much chaos and turnover and acting officials, you don't have that sense of continuity. You don't have that sense of institutional experience. But the institutional experience is important because we may not have had the playbook together when we started, but we did go through H1N1. We did go through Ebola. We created the pandemic office. So we we learned a lot of lessons and we imparted this to them. And the fact that we picked three scenarios and pandemic was one of the three that we picked suggested that we thought this was a very likely thing that could occur. Well, the other thing you talk about institutional experience is a key thing to have in your president and senior staff. It'd be good if the president was familiar 
with how government worked. I don't believe this one is. It would be reassuring if he'd read the Constitution, understood how local governments work with the federal government, and also cared about people. And it's no secret that I am deeply disturbed and worried about a president who's a megalomaniac and who says, I alone can fix it. And now worse is sort of recreating vendettas with governors all across the country. He doesn't like Whitmer, whose name he doesn't even know in Michigan. So now he's going to deprive Michigan of supplies. This is not, nothing about today is normal, but this is really not normal. Not, it doesn't it make you wonder about the people who are left in the senior staff. Anybody saying, Mr. President, we have to help the whole country, but it seems like they're all crooks, cronies, and profiteers. I don't know. Is it fair to say? Well, I, I'd say this. I mean, what is so outside the normal is that we've had presidents, again, regardless of what party you're from, uh, who believe that they were the presidents of the United States of America, um, and, and whether the people voted for you or did not vote for you. And we have right now a president who constantly is dividing between his supporters and his opponents. And you, we've seen this play out over the last couple of years. You know, he blames California for wildfires that happen in that state. Right. And yet when hurricanes happen in Alabama, he promises them A-plus service. Uh, when we had hurricanes in Puerto Rico, he constantly uh, goes after the governor and the mayor is down there. I don't uh, think he thought it was America. No, I don't, don't think he thought don't so. Don't tell. Yeah. And, and I think that's as much of it. These were not part of the people that he considers part of this country. And so what you see now is really the natural extension of that. Um, but here's the thing. Pandemics don't respect borders. Right. And so if you deprive one state of the resources, that just means it's more likely to spread to other places. And so... I hope, notwithstanding, you know, again, every day there's a new low in terms of rhetoric, that there are not supplies that are being withheld from, you know, Michigan or any other state uh, because of what the governors have said about the president. I mean, when I worked for President Obama, we were down in the Gulf Coast dealing with the oil spill. Most of the governors down there were red state governors, and yet we treated them all equally because that was your job as the president is to rise above partisanship and solve all of America's problems. Do you see a silver lining in any of this? I mean, I think it's probably too soon to really ask that question, but I just <clears throat> did. So, well, you know. I, yeah, I mean, I, and we'll touch on this at the end. I mean, I think it's certainly given people an appreciation for why government matters and why science matters and why mm. experts matter as to how we emerge from this crisis. I think it's too soon to tell. Um, we're already starting to see the dramatic economic impact of this. Uh, we obviously are going through a public health crisis, and I, I just don't know that this will end anytime soon in a good way. Um, I think we will eventually get there, but it's going to be a hard slog for this country for a while. Yeah, it feels like, well, if you've been outside, and I yesterday for the first time in three days, I covered myself in saran wrap. And rubber gloves and walked outside for two blocks. And there's nobody on the streets. Yeah. I mean, it will be a long time, I think, before we feel we can come out now, especially and, here in New York. 
Yeah, I mean, I was just in, I mean, I, I still am going to do my TV appearances by and large in the studio. And the traffic isn't even like weekend traffic. It's like holiday traffic. And holiday it's traffic at Sunday morning at exactly. six. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's quite uh, jarring to see. Yeah. The Biden piece of it, I feel like he is my president-elect. I mean, I feel that way, but I know that's a very, you know, we all thought that Hillary Clinton was going to be our president, Mm -hmm. and that's possibly part of why voter turnout was low and she didn't get the votes. Oh, well, she did get the votes, actually, but yeah. (laughs) Not enough in the right places. Right, exactly. Um, Do you feel like Biden is doing enough right now, and what do we do about the primaries going forward? Yeah. I mean, this is a challenging balance that he has to strike right now. 99% of the media attention is focused on coronavirus. Biden has been doing a number of TV appearances over the last couple of days. And as we record this, he'll be doing a a CNN town hall later on this evening. Uh, He has incredible experience in this area. I mean, I've had the chance to work with Vice President Biden during his time in uh, the Obama administration. And in 2009, when we were facing, when we were in the middle of an economic recession, he was the point person in in basically steering the country out of the recession and overseeing the $800 billion stimulus package, which at the time we thought was a massive bailout package or a massive uh, recovery package. And now we're right. at $2 trillion. Uh, but he, his job was to get the money out the door as fast as possible to shovel-ready projects so people can get back to work. And he did a masterful job in that. Um, I was there when he really uh, helped lead the efforts to get the Affordable Care Act passed because he has such a wealth of relationships um, on Capitol Hill. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is a moment that I think we can see a very striking contrast between the lack of leadership from the current president and the experience of who we think or hope will be the next president. But it's hard to get the message out in this environment. Uh, I think he's doing what he should be doing. And until this public health crisis abates, it will be a challenge. The other challenge is, frankly, the fact that the nomination process is not over yet, um, while although it is it will be exceedingly difficult uh, for Senator Sanders to make up the difference in delegates. Uh, There are still primaries left to go. And the problem is, as long as the public health crisis goes on, uh, it makes it hard for states to hold their primaries. I guess one possibility would be that Senator Sanders cedes to Vice President Biden, I suppose. And another is that (laughs) that the... The primaries have what? Mail-in? Yeah. Yeah. At this point, because of the way, and, and I know this because I'm a Democratic superdelegate, um, the, the way that we apportion delegates in the Democratic side is, is proportionally. So um, Senator Sanders would have to win an overwhelming majority in the remaining states, and that makes it very difficult. Right. And so I think much, a bunch of states are going to do mail-in primaries. And so I think as that margin uh, grows, uh, between Biden and Sanders. Senator Sanders may make that decision, um, but obviously um, that's his to make. That's his to make. And what about the chance that Donald Trump and uh, Mitch McConnell decide there can't be an election in November because of the coronavirus? So this is a uh, a theoretical question that is becoming more and more real right now. My understanding, and I've not looked at the election laws, is that th- this would require a change in legislation. 
uh, it would require federal law. So obviously having a democratic house probably precludes that. And what I've been told from constitutional scholars, and I have not double checked that, is that while you can change the election date, you can't change the date on which the president's term ends because that's set in the constitution. Uh So even if there is no election, my understanding, and I need to double check this, is that Donald Trump's term still ends. What that means in the absence of a new president, I have no idea. But my assumption is there will be an election, uh, you know, and we'll see what happens. Somehow, yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Well, I guess in my head, there is no silver lining that can compensate for the lives lost and for the agony of what's happening around the world. The only thing is that Americans will see that their president has an agenda that doesn't include protecting them, and he will be removed from office in January. And that would be my first, second, third, fourth, and fifth great things that could happen out of this uh, tragedy. You know, we have seen over the past three years the chaos of this administration, the preference of loyalty over experience, the way he's disregarded facts and science. But we haven't seen the consequences of that dramatically until now. And it's the, you know, thousand or so people that have already died. And that number will go up exponentially in the next couple of weeks. You know, as we're recording this yesterday, 3 million people applied for uh, unemployment, unemployment. insurance benefits. That's a record. And uh, that's going to continue to go up. So it's the health consequences. It's the economic consequences of a president who downplayed this uh, outbreak for the better part of two months and even now continues to play political games with the response. I agree with you, and I appreciate your answer because I'm just overly emotional about it all, and you're very measured and calm, which I love. (laughs) We're going to take a break, and then we're going to go to your five things that make your life better. We'll be right back. When times are tough and doors are closing everywhere, sometimes it's hard to know how you can make a difference. Well, I found a way. I'm Marsha Gay Harden, inviting you to join Help USA and providing better homes for Americans. Okay, we're back, and it's time for your five things. And with, a, with just a note from me that these are very prudent, wise, wonderful But coronavirus five things is different from life outside of this, you know, sad and sick bubble. So, Chris, let's go for number one. So number one is 10,000 steps a day. And I should say this, Lisa, all of these have, I think, a resonance to me in a time of coronavirus, but they have a resonance to me afterwards, uh, which will hopefully be soon. So I am religious about doing 10,000 steps a day. I have my watch on, which I'm holding up for the uh, video. And it doesn't matter if I am traveling, if I've got a busy work day, if it's a snowstorm, or if we're in the middle of a pandemic, I get my 10,000 steps in a day. I I just checked, I'm on day 885 straight days. So I've gone gone over about two and a half years. And, And especially now, when the whole world is just kind of topsy-turvy, having a sense of normalcy, having a sense of routine, Routine, whatever it is that you do, I think it's important to maintain it at this time. So for me, it's, you know, running, walking, obviously 
staying six feet apart from people uh, and getting those steps in every day. Now, wait, outside or inside? I, do, I, I will go outside. I, I sort of live in the suburbs of Washington, so I can get away from a lot of people when I run. Oh, you run? Yes. That is different from getting, when I say getting my steps, it's kind of a long, slow journey through the supermarket. <laughs> You're a runner. Well, that's why. So, uh, yeah, I've done, I've done 34 marathons. And so if you were actually to watch me walk, I walk like an old man right now. I've got like the knees of like a 70-year-old. So Wait a second. And you don't have a single gray hair. Um, yeah, well, the, the, the camera's being generous to me. Up close, you'll see him. <laughs> okay. Well, I look forward to that time. Um, by then, I may not have any gray hair. I do have quite a lot right now. Um, number two. Uh, Twitter. And I, I have to say, and, and Lisa and I met each other through Twitter, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter because I think uh, my happiest days are the ones where I sort of stay off Twitter. But there's often no better way to get news fast and to give a variety of perspectives and frankly, just inter- interact with, you know, new people and make friends, people like Lisa Bernbach, who I never would have met other than <laughs> Twitter. Um, and I think especially at a time like this, what I have appreciated is just the variety of information I can tap into, like from scientific and health experts, or it's just reading and seeing the heartbreaking stories of doctors and patients. And it puts the kind of human face on the statistics that we see every day. And, and so I'm in my pseudo love phase of Twitter, although I'm sure once I look at the last thing that Donald Trump has tweeted, I'll be back to hate again with Twitter. Yeah, exactly. The thing about Twitter is, as you said, it's so economical with your time. You get all the news in a hurricane in a quick burst as soon as you wake up. And I have to admit that I do look at Twitter first thing in the morning and probably last thing at night. But don't you remember when it was kind of comedians doing routines? And I mean, old Twitter, you'd see people taking pictures of, you know, the sloppy guy next to them on the airplane who was traveling in shorts. And that would be sort of the worst yeah. thing you would see in a day. I do, I do hope one day we can sort of restore Twitter to its pointlessness rather than it's, exactly. I have a book coming out, you know. Okay, number three. Uh, number three is paid media subscriptions. And I started this uh, with a New Year's resolution where I went to my Twitter followers and I said, I, I want to encourage everyone just to subscribe to, it could be a newspaper, it could be an online news source. And now more than ever in a time of Trump, we need a strong, independent, fact-based media And people need to understand it costs money to report and to put news out. And what I'm I'm pleased about is during this pandemic, so many newspapers have uh, dropped their paywalls so you can read what is happening there. But And hopefully that gives people an appreciation for why newspapers and especially why local news matters. Yeah. And so I hope- A lot of local papers are actually folding, closing forever during this pandemic because- they're not getting ads, and yep. I guess people don't want to come into work. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, so I hope your listeners 
you know, after, at the end of this, just just go online. You know, it's it's 15, 20 bucks a year. Subscribe to something and help support the media. When you think about the reporters who <clears throat> are going into the hospitals, who are going into war zones, who are going into dangerous circumstances or thankless circumstances, like that woman in in Miami who single-handedly brought down Jeffrey yeah. Epstein and people said, forget it, forget it. The point is they're not getting paid very well no. compared to what wages are in the, in the big world and good for them and help support them. I couldn't agree more. Your number four is a little bit, uh, is a good segue from that. Yeah. Number four is small businesses. Uh, look, I'm always a fan of, you know, mom and pop restaurants and bookstores and things. But I think now more than ever, um, they are struggling. And, and obviously, I, I say this with the caution of follow whatever orders are in place wherever you are. In Virginia, where I am right now, there are still some small businesses still open, mostly restaurants doing takeout. But I, we, my wife and I have been trying to go, you know, every other night doing takeout somewhere. Uh, we've got a hardware store that's still open. You know, I'll go in there and, you know, we've got a lot of time for home improvement projects now, buying something. These small businesses have a tiny profit margin. And they're like the lifeblood of our neighborhoods. And so it, I always prefer shopping at them, period. But especially now, if it is permissible to do so and it's safe to do so, you know, go buy something, go take out a meal, buy a sandwich, and more importantly, ask them how they're doing. Because I am struck when I talk to them how desperately they're trying to hold on and keep as many employees on staff as possible. But they're having a hard time right now. They are having such a terrible time. And think about the people who come to work from a distance. In New York City, in Manhattan, where I live, the people who are working in the corner bodega or at our hardware store probably are traveling by subway, probably are scared as they come and go every day, but feel committed to their uh, to their community and feel committed to their job and want to feed their own family. And it really is something. And I, I have noticed that there is a kindness that I hear, a kind of concern that I hadn't heard in the stores where I go. Um, and number five. Number five is career government employees. And I think we don't fully appreciate why competence in government matters until we get to a crisis. And I have a special appreciation for this. I spent 20 years in government, all in political jobs, uh, but my father was a career federal civil servant. Uh, I come from a long family line of aunts and uncles who worked in the federal government. And these are the people now, notwithstanding whatever craziness is happening in the White House, who are trying to you know, develop the vaccines and who are trying to find ventilators. And, you know, it's not just the federal level, it's the state, it's a local level, all the first responders. This is not the deep state, as Donald Trump has said. Um, These are hardworking men and women who are not recognized, uh, who are not paid what they should be, who are helping people right now. And uh, we really owe them a, a debt of gratitude right now. Totally. A hundred percent. And you're the first guest who's pointed this out. And I really appreciate it. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, we saw when we saw people testifying 
during the impeachment trial and we meet these career diplomats who have no glamour, who have no glory, who come and go at the whim of the State Department. And we do owe all the career government people a huge debt. Hey, Chris Liu, it was great talking to you and meeting you in this new way. And uh, we will see one another again when this is all over. I'm convinced of it, and I'm going to sign your book and <laughs> other things. I'll sign other things. Absolutely. Thank you it, it for such all the service honor. you do also. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you for this podcast. It really is one of my favorites, and it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you so much. And now it's time for my five things that made life better this week. But before I do, I want to read from a beautiful essay that I found on Facebook, written by a famous Italian novelist called Francesca Melandri. She wrote this after having been on lockdown for three weeks. I am writing to you from Italy, which means I am writing from your future. We are now where you will be in a few days. The epidemic's charts show us all entwined in a parallel dance. We are but a few steps ahead of you in the path of time, just like Wuhan was a few weeks ahead of us. We watch as you behave just as we did. You hold the same arguments we did until a short time ago between those who still say, it's only a flu, why all the fuss, and those who have already understood. First of all, you'll eat, not just because it will be one of the few last things that you can still do. You'll find dozens of social networking groups with tutorials on how to spend your free time in fruitful ways. You will join them all, then ignore them completely after a few days. You'll pull apocalyptic literature out of your bookshelves, but will soon find you don't really feel like reading any of it. You'll have an unstoppable online social life on Messenger, WhatsApp, Skype, Zoom. You will miss your adult children like you have never before. The realization that you have no idea when you will ever see them again will hit you like a punch in the chest. Old resentments and falling outs will seem irrelevant. You will call people you had sworn never to talk to again so as to ask them, how are you doing? Many of you will fall asleep vowing that the very first thing you'll do as soon as lockdown is over is file for divorce. Many children will be conceived. Your children will be schooled online. They'll be horrible nuisances. They'll give you joy. Elderly people will disobey you like rowdy teenagers. You'll have to fight with them in order to forbid them from going out to get infected and die. You will try not to think about the lonely deaths in the ICU. You'll want to cover with rose petals all medical workers' steps. If we turn our gaze to the more distant future, the future which is unknown both to you and to us too, we can only tell you this. When all of this is over the world won't be the same. The entirety of this essay is posted on my website at lisabernbach.com. I recommend you read it. It's very touching. So my five things this week are nonprofits, are charities, which are very actively engaged in supporting health workers, food for children, homes for the homeless, and food for the homeless, and in fact, Dr. Fauci's own charity. They are, number one, the 1199 Home Care Workers Home Care Fund. And I have the email address of that. HelpUSA.org, which helps the most vulnerable populations in our country, homeless, 
children, veterans, and they have a special fund just for the coronavirus. Uh, number three, coronavirus.health.newyork.gov. Since New York is, as Governor Cuomo calls it, the canary in the coal mine, and we will pass along all our intelligence and supplies after we have crested in New York. Number four, nfidsystems.com. That is Dr. Fauci's organization. And number five, nokidhungry.org slash coronavirus. And until next week, I ask you to stay home, stay safe, and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.